Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Daniel Goldstein. Now, Daniel is the Executive Vice President and Chief Legal and Compliance Officer at Pitney Bowes, and um, he's held that position since 2010. It's a fascinating discussion, uh, super insightful. Daniel takes us through the, the, the highlights and some of the challenges of his career. One challenge I'll call out because uh, it's a super interesting discussion. So it's the challenges of transforming what is an iconic brand and has been for over 100 years, Pitney Bowes. And what's that like in the in the digital age and what the last 10 years has been like there and the role that the current CEO has taken there to kind of galvanize the troops and the res- and the team. So that's an interesting part of the discussion. He talks about what, it, what it's like to be a true partner to the biz- business. We've heard that theme before. And another theme we've heard, which is one of my favorites, the, the importance and the skill of listening and really listening. And that's um, easy to say, very hard to do. So once again, a fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it too. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax and enjoy the episode. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to having a nice conversation. Yeah, more than welcome. So, Daniel, you're currently the Executive Vice President and Chief Legal and Compliance Officer at Pitney Bowles. You've been there, I think, since 2010. You had some more history with Pitney Bowles too earlier in your career. And I think you started life as a litigation associate at Debevoise Plimpton. Can you tell us a little bit about the Daniel Goldstein story? And perhaps if there are any pivotal moments in that in the journey to date, that'd be great to hear. Sure. And thanks for having me. So actually, my story starts a year before Debevoise, where I worked for a federal judge for a year as a clerk. Fantastic. Uh, a wonderful opportunity to see how a judge thinks about things. And then, in fact, if I think about the arc of what you called my story, story it's had, I've had the benefit of being able to see being a lawyer from multiple different perspectives. Yep. And I think actually being a lawyer, a successful lawyer, and many other things is understanding other ways people look at it. Yep. So I, leave, I go from working for a judge to spending several years at Debevoise, where I, got, I was a general litigator and was able to hone the skills in multiple different kinds of cases and issues um, ranging from copyright to capital liability to securities to a capital punishment case I worked on for many years. Wow. And from, from there, and that is a formative moment that we can talk about a little yeah, later. I'd love, love From there, I reached a point in my career where I wanted to do something different. I'd always been interested in public service of different kinds and securities law both struck me as an area where I could do that and also become an area of specialization. So I went from Debevoise to working for the government at the Securities and Exchange Commission doing enforcement work. And that now gave me an opportunity to see the world. I saw the world from the perspective of a judge, from a private party, hiring a lawyer, and now to working for the government. And after doing that for a few years, again, I'm trying to truncate I'm older than I care to be, I think, I was ready for the next move, which was to go in-house. 
and to see the world where you have a client in a very different way. And I've loved that. It started here at Tiffany Bowes for close to 10 years, then uh, left and became the general counsel of a set of private companies for a couple of years and then came back here. And I think the great thing about being in-house is now you really owned yeah. your advice. Yep. And you weren't in there for a transaction. You were there for the life of it. I can think about times where we would make a business decision. And I would say, well, if we do that, I think it's appropriate, but there's a good chance we'll get sued. And here's yep. what will happen next. Yep. And to then see that play out yep. and to watch that process and to get it right or to get it wrong was interesting. And to... You also, in all those different places, you define winning differently yeah. and success differently. But having the benefit of seeing it from all those different perspectives, I think, is made for a rich career uh, in yeah. being a lawyer and I think in being a business person. And, and certainly when you're on the advisory side, you know, when you're a litigation associate and, and you're laying out the outcomes, you, you're right, you don't own the outcomes because typically you might not necessarily be there for the final where you could get sued or whatever it might be but certainly as in-house you you have to own the outcome because the likelihood is whatever the advice that was received that's got to be managed because that outcome whether it's a, a negative outcome so nothing happened or um, yes the risk that was foreshadowed did was realized you're living with that, and and ultimately, I like the way you talk about that. You, you own, if you like, the um, uh, that outcome. So it gives you, I expect, a very different perspective, especially when yes. you're giving the advice. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, I think that as a litigation practitioner at a law firm or in government, you have matters. Yeah, they Perfect. have a beginning and an end. Yep. When you're at a company and the role I'm in and in the range of things I deal with, you have, there is no end. So you don't sit there and go, oh, great, I settled the case. We're done. Yep. Instead, you go, okay, how did we get into that case? Yep. How do we avoid it or change our practices or do better so it doesn't happen again? And often, the other component to it, I think, and I mentioned this a minute ago, is how you define winning is very different. Yep. In a lawsuit, a single lawsuit, you think about, did I get a good settlement? Did I win at summary judgment? When you're working for a company or you, you are not just thinking about the outcome of that lawsuit, you're thinking about, so what does that mean for the long term? What does it mean for the relationship I have with a particular client or a particular vendor? What arguments am I willing to make because I think about what how they may affect things later yeah. as compared to, I just want to win the case. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a bit later on about your relationship with law firms. I want to come back to this point and how, particularly how you kind of educate law firms that are working with you, that you do have that longer term perspective. So to the extent that they can effectively tailor their advice or the way that they deal with you, I, I think that's going to be interesting. Look, before I do that, talked a bit about pivotal moments. Can you can you pull some out of that journey so far? You talked about also the case, the capital punishment case you worked on. I'd love to hear about a little bit about some of those pivotal moments. So they are, needless to say, very different at different points in my career. I think that starting with the capital punishment case I worked on while at Debevoise, 
to literally feel that the arguments you were making affected someone's yeah. life is a very different feeling. And to what I observed in a day, I'll just give a story, as I started the day one day traveling down to death row to meet with my client and in the wonderful world of big New York law firms, flying home after going to the office and working on a commercial liability. Yeah. Case. I, I was like, boy, this is one bizarre day. <laughs> yeah. And part of what that told me is just the range and diversity of issues that one could deal with in this career. The same sort of structure around it, but the meaning and fascination with the issues underneath it, and the, how it affects people's lives. Was it, I would say a day like that was felt very pivotal to me. Yeah. You know, at the uh, here, I think some of my most pivotal moments have been not so much about law in the pure sense. It's more of being helping be a problem solver, yeah. work a problem, figure out what the solution is, figure out all the different components to it. And often I find and I our job as lawyers is to ask a lot of questions and to work it down to what is the problem? What is the issue? So we had a cyber attack a few years ago yeah. and I didn't know much about technology and all of that. But in the course of that, I was working closely with communications, with the information technology people, the privacy people, all of these up, the businesses, how are we going to solve this problem together? How are we going to marshal all those assets? And a lot of it came down to talking to all these people and learning. And I think so what those things taught me is those are just a couple examples, is be curious. Yep. Be open to changing your mind and ask question after question after question. Yep. Yeah, one of the things certainly that we've heard in podcasts is, is the moving away from sometimes uh, an inherent feeling you might have as the GC that you, you naturally know the answers, legal or otherwise, but being very comfortable saying, well, I actually don't know the answers. But what I'm really good at is asking questions and being curious so that you can arm yourself with, and it's typically not a legal problem. It might have legal aspects, but it's typically not a legal problem. But arm yourself with all the information that you can and that it's the judgment that's valued at the end of the day, um, not necessarily the strict black letter law, black letter law legal advice. Does, does that make sense to you? Is that really Yes, I, I think that's absolutely right. I To go back to the questioning and knowing, if you walk into a meeting, and you say, I know the answer. Yeah. You've lost the room before the meeting's begun. Yeah. Yeah. And you should, because you don't know as much as the people in the room about the problem you're going to then work with yeah. them to solve. But I think that it ultimately comes down to, from the judgment perspective, is understanding what it is you need to know to make a reasoned decision. And what is it you don't need to know? Yeah. What's enough? I had a uh, boss once who said to me, I still remember this when I was starting to supervise lawyers who weren't litigators. And I said, oh, I've supervised people before. And she said, yes, but you've never supervised people who know more about what they do than you do. Yeah. 
And so then it becomes, okay, what do I need to know to bring my capacity for risk assessment, my experience to bear on this problem that adds value? And it and deciding what those issues are, you need to understand more deeply. And what are those things you say, okay, you got that. I don't need to know more about that. You have that handled. Yeah. But this point I have to delve into yeah. is, is really the judgment point I think you're talking about. That's interesting, about. actually, because as you say, life in a big law firm, so typically as you get more experience, progress, and the team grows um, beneath you as you become more senior, the chances are that you do know more than the members of your team, or at least as much because of the expertise that you've developed. That might not be the case against practice areas, but it certainly is with the team that you're supervising. That is very different, actually, when you then move in-house and take responsibility, let's say, for more than just the strict, either the legal function or, or at least the areas of practice that you otherwise might have been an expert in. So then the ability to supervise people who know more than you, that becomes then a very different skill set. So I yeah, think it is. Distinction. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. It is also what you need to do to be an effective counselor yeah. to the people around you. They don't just want to hear the law, as you put it before. They want you to apply it to what they do. Yeah. They want you to think about how can the law help me get to where I want to go? Or how can I do what I want to do consistent with the law? And you can't do that if you don't really understand what they're trying to accomplish. And you can't do that unless you take the time to learn the business and go to the locations, go to the sites and see the operation and talk to people about how it is we make money and what are the things that can keep us from succeeding in that goal. Yeah. And your previous point about um, losing the room if we go in there um, thinking that you know the answer, that did make me just think of you know a, a general word of advice for everyone out there to make sure you leave Mr. or Mrs. Ego outside the room when you walk in there. And that's something sometimes is difficult to do. And it reminds me, and I've called this out before, but um, one of the great books I read, and I wish I'd read years ago, but Ryan Halliday's Ego is the Enemy. Just learning really about how much ego plays in our day-to-day existence, the way we interact with um, everyone, and being able to recognise that, step back from that, whether it's knowing the answers or whether it's actually giving, letting some, letting others step in the limelight, you stepping back. Um, that's a great lesson for everyone, I reckon. Yeah, I, I think that I heard people here talk about it. The, the goal of a discussion is not to win the argument. Yeah. It's to yeah. get to the right result. Yeah. And so a key mark of effective leadership is being able to, being open to changing your mind. Yeah. Walking into a room, thinking X, coming out, going with X prime. Yeah. And people want to be heard. People want you empower people when you listen to them and learn from them. And it's not a sign of weakness to say, you know what, you're right. Yeah. That's the better way to handle that. And then you've actually won, even if it wasn't your position going in. But some people get you can get wrapped up in the discussion, say, No, I came in and I'm right, and this is why I'm right, without thinking about, yeah, okay, what's right for the organization? What's right for the problem? And it can be different than what your preconceived notion may 
Yeah. And you've got to work at it. Those listening skills. I mean, I instinctively, when you're having a discussion or debate, there's a natural, and I see it sometimes with myself, you're not actually listening. You're thinking about the next point you're going to make which you think will counter. That's exactly right. Yeah, that, that's, that's yes. a natural instinct. You're, you're not really listening. You're working on your next point, okay? But it, right. it's a real skill, I think, and you've got to work harder, particularly if you've been trained in the... Sometimes, you know, if you've been trained as a litigator or as a lawyer, when you, you, you do win the arguments, being able to step aside and not be thinking about what your next point is, but really listening. One of those things, easy to say, really hard to do. Um, really hard to do. Yeah, yes. fantastic. But a, an absolutely necessary skill, I think, for true leadership. Um, absolutely. And, and to be able to go, win the hearts and the minds for the team. Daniel, you, you've been at Pitney Bowes now for uh, a number of years, you know, an iconic American brand, 100-plus-year-old um, company. How do you think, when, when you started there and, and your time there, how do you think about, being a kind of a steward of the brand and managing kind of risk given the longevity and, and the history that the company has. And, and maybe the cyber attack example, maybe we can do a bit more of a deeper dive there. How, how do you think about that in the context of the kind of brand? It has been a fascinating journey to watch how the company has approached risk assessment. Yep. And as you talk about it, our brand. And what we have had to go through and watch is we've had a very successful business model for many, many years, primarily focused on mail. Yep. And as the world of mail has changed, we've had to evolve yep. and we've had to transform. And at first you worry about the risk of, well, will this be as profitable as what yeah, we used to be? That. But yeah. then you wake up and say, well, I can't stay still. Yeah. It's more risky to do nothing. And it's a bit of a journey to go from that preserving what you have to knowing we have to change. Yeah. And the company has embraced that. There, we have, our, our CEO has been here for about nine years. He came from another company. And when he walked in, I think he identified and harnessed a real desire for change. Yeah. A real desire that it was more risky to stand still than to change. But then you have to deal with that in the individual moments. Yeah. You have to be willing to accept that not all the ideas for change are going to succeed. And the person who had the idea, it may not have succeeded, not because of something they did wrong, but because it just didn't work. But you have to be open to that. You have to. And we've had to go on a journey of saying, we got, it's okay to fail if you learn from it and we understand why and we do better the next time. But underneath it all, he also came in and said, there is a power to this brand. There is a power to the culture of this organization. We summarize it in what might sound like a simple phrase, but there's a lot to it of we always try to do the right thing the right way. Yep. And the number of times that actually comes up in a meeting is remarkable. But as he walked in, he said, I want to preserve that. I want to preserve the goodwill and the desire of the employees of this company to succeed, but I want us to understand we have to do it differently. And so over the last stretch of time, we have done significant amount of moving from a, moving to more digital ways of doing things. We have moved more to shipping as composed to just shipping packages as opposed to just mailing letters. 
and understanding what it was about the brand and how we acted that would lead us forward and what were the things we had to change. So it's been a wonderful experience. Yeah, and I I can imagine the kind of transformation just given what's happened, given the business that Pitney Bowers is originally in, given what's happened the last 10 plus years, I can imagine that transformation. But going back even to when, let's say 2010 or 11, when your current CEO started and He's laying out a vision of change, but a lot of that change hasn't started yet. And and so a lot of it is speculation. How do you win hearts and minds with something which hasn't, is not staring at everyone, is not necessarily obvious? How do you win win hearts and minds in those circumstances? Because it is a projection. It might not be entirely right. The timing might might be out. But, uh, and, and what is it that makes everyone compelled? Yes. It is the right path. So be thinking about how we can effectively radically transform. That that can't be an easy task. No, I think a few things make it work. The no. good news is there was a significant amount of energy already and recognition that we needed to change. Yep. So we start there. The next thing is I think as we did is some quick wins, some early actions. Yep that show that we're not kidding, we are gonna change. And then within those change scenes, some of those things go well. The harder part actually came next because it's a long journey. Yeah. And you, some things you identify right away, you can go do. Now comes the next step. And that, there are gonna be setbacks and recognizing, and we had some, and recognizing the setbacks as we figure out where we're going. Maintaining that energy isn't easy, but when you have, I think it requires determined leadership. It requires being honest about what's working and what's not working. Recognizing that even on your journey of change, it's not just a plan. It's a plan with detours. There's the outside world. There are things like pandemics. There are things that happen that you need to identify the wins, acknowledge when things aren't going well, and work and, and have the team be vested with you. Have them be part of the process. If it's just a dictate from on high, it won't work. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to talk about how that's impacted specifically on you and the legal function and how that has, let's say, changed over the course of the last 10 years, how have the priorities changed perhaps from what the priorities were some years ago and, and perhaps the ways of working. Can you talk a little bit about the impact sure. of you and your team? Sure. Yep. So I would start with the concept of risk that we yep. talked about a little bit before and understanding, helping, working with my team, and I've got a wonderful team. It's not risk elimination. It's risk management and risk assessment on what is worth doing, but where does the reward outweigh the risk yeah. and thinking more critically about that. Not just sitting there going, we might get sued yeah. if we don't have that language in the contract. Say, okay, but if that goes wrong, what will the impact be? And is it an impact we care about? What is, again, what is the win? Are we prepared? We want to do a transaction. And there's a point. Okay, so what if that goes wrong? Well, what does that compare to us actually buying that business? And 
95 times out of 100, it's a risk worth taking. Yeah. And recognizing that the win isn't, again, winning every single point in an indemnification provision. The win is getting the transaction done with an appropriate level of risk. And, and that goes down to even individual contracts, individual customer contracts. Do we really want to walk away from this business because of that term? Yep. What is the downside to that term? And then another part to it is we all have limited resources. What are the things we are going to dig all the way down on? What are we going to get the A paper on? And what are we going to get the C paper on? Yep. Lawyers as a profession tend to be perfectionists. And one of the things I had to work with the team on is where are they going to spend their time? Yeah. We never have enough time. Yep. Where are the things that we're going to let go and where are the things we're going to focus on? And I guess finally, the point I really wanted to enable with my team, and I believe I've succeeded again in part because of the talent of the team I have, is being a partner of the business, which is a trite thing a lot of lawyers might say. But my point was, we need to be with them from the beginning of the journey to find the solution so they can accomplish what they want within the confines of the law. Yeah. So being part of business unit team meetings, going out to sites, working with people to understand what their motivation is, and then helping them get there. So when those times come, which they inevitably do, that you have to say, no, we can't quite do that. They get it, that you're there to help them succeed, that you're in the journey with them. And I think the team has gotten there so that we are viewed as counselors and we're heard for more than just the pure legal advice. Yep. And apart from it being better for the organization, it makes the job so much more fun yep. to be part of that instead of just being a gate to an end. Yeah, I've heard the term enablers, you know, a team of enablers being yes. so that you are enabling the business to achieve its goals, of course, within the confines of the regulatory environment, but you are enabling each of the business units to achieve those goals because that's yeah, so, the kind of so what business wants. Right. So what we talk about is, you know, you talk about different corporate functions like legal being cost centers. And I try to remind the team and work with the businesses. We're not. We're part of the revenue generating process. Yep. You need the contract. You need the intellectual property clearances. You need all those things in order to go out and generate the revenue. And when we find ourselves embedded as part of that, we become, as, to use your word, an enabler. Yep. And people see us that way. Yep. Tell me about the impact of technology in the last five or 10 years and the way that's impacted the legal function, let's stick to the legal function. Is there much in, by way of technology that's impacted the way yes. your team works? So, yeah. Yeah. So I'll work backwards a little bit. Yep. The pandemic yeah. and the impact and the ability to do like what we're doing, which is having a video conference, yeah. has been critical. And what that has enabled, and we were using it even before, is for my team to be all over the place. So and and also for my team to be able to have flexible work work experiences. So a lot of people. So instead of it talking about work life balance, we often talk about work life integration. Yeah. So you work from nine to one, yeah. but then you go do something with your child from one to two, and yeah. then you're back to work. Yeah. We also 
you know, use IMing as a virtual knock on the door. I really work with my team and say, let's not set meetings. If you want to talk to me, I am me. Do you have a minute? Yeah. And let's just do it. And it creates a, an informality over distance that you wouldn't otherwise have. We also, like many, many organizations, take advantage of, you know, we share our knowledge through SharePoint, you know, a, a system so that we can all see each other's work and edit documents together and work in a close environment, even when we can't be in the same room. But then the other part to it is being open to technology enabling things done differently. So no more pen signatures. Why do we have to have someone sign that in ink? And getting people, it takes some people time to say, well, I don't have to have an ink copy at all. I just yeah. need another way of proving it. Yeah. So all of those things, it's, it's being open to different ways of doing the same ultimate substance job, but in different ways. Yep. Any particular, you've mentioned the pandemic, of course, and so the last 18 months and a little bit more now has been a challenge for everyone. Any particular challenges with your team that, let's say, were, were more difficult to solve than you might have anticipated or, or that simply weren't anticipated at all? I think the ability to separate. Yeah. I talked about work-life integration. And on one level, that's good. On another level, they're fully integrated. Feel, <laughs> yes, and, and people feel on all the time. Yeah, yeah. And people have to turn off. You're better at your job if you step away from it. You take a walk. Yeah. You play tennis. You do whatever it is that listen to music, read a book, whatever it is. You're better at your job if you walk away from it. And people, it take took a while for people to get you get to be off. And especially in earlier parts of the pandemic when people weren't traveling at all, how do you take vacation at home? How do you urge people to be yeah. at home, take vacation? I think that probably more than anything was the biggest unanticipated challenge. Yeah. I mentioned earlier that I was going to ask you a, bit, a, little, a little bit about law firms. Tell me how your relationship with your law firms has changed let's say, over the course of, since, since your time as a chief legal officer, how has that changed? What, what, what was important and is no longer, let's say, important or what wasn't important and is becoming more important? Any, any insights that you can provide us there? I think it has been important, more and more important, how we communicate with each other and how we manage each each other's expectations. Yeah. yeah. So I have a story from a while back where a lawyer on my team asked a question and two weeks later got back a 15 page memo oh. and a $20,000 bill. But, and I said, this is not the first time we've heard this story. I can tell you. Said, so what does this mean? How did you get there? He said, well, I asked the question and the law firm said, well, we answered it. And I said, well, it's incumbent on us to describe how important the answer is. And it's incumbent on you yeah. to say, I can answer that question, but this is what it's going to cost you. Yeah. And I don't need 20 page memos. I need good judgment, good answers. And when I need the depth, I need the depth. Yeah. 
I I think that there is, you know, this world and it's a common discussion around when when time is inventory and the billable hours being used, which in many ways is the least worst way, there can be a lack of understanding on both sides about certain issues. So finding those times when we can use alternative billing arrangements. What I found very interesting, actually, what I've learned over the years is budgeting with law firms isn't just about the budget. It helps me learn their strategy. Yeah. It helps me learn how they think about the case or the or the transaction. So I look more for there are two different things I look for. The one is I look for those lawyers who are comfortable giving advice without having five lawyers write memos with every case known to mankind. I also look for law firms to tell me when I'm wrong and not just do what the client says or tell me when something is really not a good strategy. And then the other thing I would say is one of the things I learned working at a big New York law firm is how to do everything perfectly. Yeah. The real judgment comes in deciding what you don't need to do what you don't have to do perfectly. And I have a great deal of respect for the law firms that will tell me what I don't need to do, what I don't need to worry about. And then tell me the things, what you really have to dig in on. Yeah. And and certainly the way you're trained and there's nothing, not taking anything away from it is an excellent training at a a top law firm, but it is typically make sure that every stone is, is turned. And sometimes the billing arrangements yeah, incentivize that yeah, because of the alley rate. So, I mean, and I don't. To be clear, I don't think I don't think anyone I work with does things just because no. they get paid for it. Yeah, but if you can make pretty much everything make sense to do, and to decide, you know, I don't need to do that. Yep. It's harder. It's yep. just harder. It is. I do like the you comment though about if if you've thought out the process and the way. And certainly in, um, in our experience, if, if you're asking for something, let's say I, I really need to have a, a fixed fee or something close to a fixed fee or cap, that does actually make the law firm think about, okay, what are the strategies? What, what would I typically do? And is there anything that we don't actually collectively we can discuss and say, we actually don't need to do that bit. So we can frame the level of work, the areas we're focusing on, what we're not focusing on, and delivering and being able to provide that kind of structure. And just that thought process is actually important because it does take you through what you, let's say, may typically do and think about, as I said, you know, what's going to be important there? What can be shaved? What is an acceptable risk not to research to the nth degree? Right. The, the other thing, to go back to uh, the question where we started on here is, you know, if I went back when I was at a law firm many years ago, there was a little bit of a stereotype of in-house lawyers looking at the bill, making sure it wasn't too much. It's very different now. And it's been that way. And I've always enjoyed that, which is we're a team. We're a team with them. And I appreciate the back and forth where they will adjust based on what I or my team is thinking, and I will adjust based on what they're thinking. 
because we bring different things to the table. They bring a great deal of expertise on how to do certain things, but we bring the business. Yep. We bring, again, how we define winning, what's going to work for us. And it's the combination that makes it work. And if either side isn't prepared to do that, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the, the, the change that you've seen in the last 10 or so years. And if you're projecting out a little bit five years into the future, tell me how your role or more generally the role of a GC, how do you see it changing? What kind of trajectory is is it on right now and, and how do you, you know, do, do you see it playing out on that kind of trajectory? I mean, just to give an example, we've seen a greater focus on ESG and is that something that's likely to continue? What do you see in the next few years and what are the skill sets that you think are going to be more and more important? So I, if I think about my day and I were to think about my hours and the amount of time I actually spend on pure law, yep. it's it goes down each year yeah and i i view the job of the gc as a lot about being risk identifier and manager problem solver regardless of the problem counselor across the leadership team i like to be i like to think of myself as a disinterested third party who has no agenda but the success of the overall operation. Yeah. Yeah. I think most people think like that but and, and really try to act that way, but there's something different about the role that enables you to play that across the entire leadership team. So I have sort of seen the areas I've in, been involved in expand over time. Yes, I'm involved more and more in ESG and thinking about how we're addressing areas across that. But there are other people who are responsible for the different pieces of that, yeah. who really do the real work. I have found myself deeply involved in cybersecurity. I now find myself thinking about vaccines and pandemics and crisis management, regardless of the crisis. How are we gonna handle it? And so a lawyer brings, I think, can bring those problem-solving skills of being a generalist. They can, they can take across whatever the problem is to try to bring people together to figure out the answer, to be a, a real advisor to the CEO, to the CFO, to the head of human resources, to all the business unit leads. And that's when the job is at its best. And yep. I just see that continuing where our role is to start with the fundamentals of law, but then take that, those fundamentals, and apply them throughout all the issues that a corporation could face. Yep. Can you call out, Daniel, what are your top three priorities moving forward? Let's say over the course of the next 12, 24 months, to the extent that you can share them with us. Yeah, I, I you know, I, in thinking about this, I, I saw that question. I, yeah, I, it's yeah. a hard question to answer. Yep. And I think that it is, it is continuing to manage through rapid change, yeah. regardless of which bucket I put that in. So it's about talent. How do we help talent in all the different places we are now? How do we deal with the constantly ratcheting up threat of cybersecurity? How do we be sure that the company is 
doing the right thing the right way, the ESG topics and beyond. So as we grow the business, we're doing it in a way that's sustainable for the long term. To identify three three or four specific things yep. is hard. It's more about the process than the specific yeah. item. And you so. called out talent there, and and it's one which I know we all think about a lot. I certainly think about a lot too, particularly in the in a, in the environment that we're in, and how I, always, I talk a lot about being able to, you know, it's pretty simple. Have great employees, you they got to be, need to feel valued, trusted, that their voice is heard, that they're making a contribution, and that they're you know, learning and becoming better uh, at whatever they're doing. So. Being able to do that in a new environment where it's you know for for big chunks of time it might be remote, losing the kind of um, the social connection that so many of us uh, I think derive energy from, and what that looks like in the future too, particularly if we do start moving towards more of a remote workforce. All things I think that are big challenges ahead of us. And one of the most important because it's about the people. And so I can do lots of things wrong, but if I get the people bit right and hire the, and hire and motivate the right talent, then you can you can actually get away with getting a few things wrong too. So where in your priority list is that right, top top of the list? For you? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think that I am able to do all the fun things I just talked about. Yeah. Because I have such a terrific team. Yeah. And I know that they're gonna. They are, it's a dedicated group of people who are trying to do similar things to what I do, but also making sure that I don't miss all those fundamentals, yeah. that we get the right blocking and tackling in place. And they do a good job of reminding me about that. And I think as you were talking about a little in that list you just went through, making sure that that I invested, which I am, in their career development, yeah. in them learning, and in them continuing to grow. Because the only way that great people stay is if they continue to grow and learn and have expanding opportunities. If I, you know, we started on the arc of my career. And when I think about things along the way, so much of it was about less about a particular promotion. It was more about a new experience, yeah. learning a new thing, doing something different, and then turning around one day and saying, wow, I know how to do all this. Yeah. I can do something else now. Yeah. And so I, I almost think of it as it's a daily, I need to pay attention to every day to what is the value to them of being at Pitney Bowes, not just what is the yeah. value we get from them. Yeah. And hopefully they feel that. I, I could not be luckier, could not have a better team. And they helped me succeed. Yeah. Daniel, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? <laughs> Boy, I don't know where to start yeah. to answer that question. And <laughs> um, what part of my life, in my home life, in my, you know, my work life, I think, it is, I think it is learning how to fail. Yeah. And then moving on. And there are multiple times of that. I failed plenty of times. Yep. And what do you do with that? Yep. How do you learn from it? How do you then take the next step? It's hard in the arc of a life or a career to pick the hardest thing. Yeah. But I, I do think it is learning how to pick yourself up. And, and what time. And, and tell me the advice you'd give. Let's say to, to the viewers out there, 
a little younger than you and I. Daniel, what's the advice around your learnings about learning how to fail and how to learn from that? Because that is that is tough. And, you know, that's a bit of the ego that we've talked about before. Uh, what's the advice that you give to, to the listeners out there? I guess I would say it's a little trite, maybe, but that the only way you get better is if you stretch yourself beyond your current capabilities. Yeah. And the only way that happens is to fail something. If you're prepared to fail. Yep. But then be prepared to fail, but then be prepared to learn from it. Take a hard look at yourself and make sure don't, first of all, it's not all about you not being doing a good job, but it is part about you. Yep. So don't just look at the environmental factors that caused it and say, well, it's because of this, that, or the other thing. Say, given all those things, what can I have done differently? Yeah. What do I learn from it? And what am I going to do better the next time? And so I, I do think that as I've seen what communication styles work or don't work, how working with the client has worked or not worked, I've tried to change. I've tried to pay attention to that. But back, the other thing that's been really hard, I think, one, one other comment is I don't think we're any of us are very good at understanding how people look at us. And so one of the great learnings in my life was I had the opportunity to have a 360 feedback one time. Yep. And that basically, for those who don't know, that means your peers, the people who you supervise and the people who supervise you. Yep. And the things I heard were stunning. To hear that I thought I was communicating one thing and the person heard the absolute opposite. Else. Yep. Or I learned that people wanted more from me in certain situations. And that was very empowering to say, okay, step yeah. out of my comfort zone and go beyond the pure legal for me and take a chance on saying something that everyone else in the room already is going to know. Yeah. And, and saying, oh my God, that wasn't very intelligent. But then the next time it'll be a little better. Yeah. So it's back to, again, it's failing, failing and learning how to pick yourself up. What they call grit often is just so key. Yeah. I do like the point you make about being able to hear what or how others hear rather than just what you hear of yourself. I think that's uh, I think that's really powerful. And again, that's some that takes that takes learning, that takes time. Again, that takes a bit of the um, uh, shedding of the ego too, but really being able to put yourself in someone else's position and listening with their ears, if you like, or trying to understand trying to say that uh, i think that's incredibly powerful yeah so earlier you talked about how in a conversation you can find yourself not listening yeah you're just thinking about your next point yeah another expression i use sometimes is you need to listen while you're talking yeah so is it resonating are you actually getting the point across are you turning people off and you it's part of your brain doing that while you're trying to communicate is not easy, but yeah. it's something that makes someone more effective. Yeah. Uh, Daniel, anything that you spent too much time worrying about in the past that on reflection has not been time well spent? I think it is another hard question. You're good at those hard questions. <laughs> I do think it is, again, I can't speak, pick a specific so much as trusting when you have the answer. Yeah. 
not spending another five hours. You know, there are different ways of learning that over time. There's, a, I don't know if it's actually works or not, but there's, there's a book that got written called Blink, yes. where sometimes your 